Welcome to our church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And as uh, I think Peter was saying, if uh, you're visiting today for the first time, whether you're family in town or are out of town or not, uh, welcome. Glad you got, glad to have you guys with us today as we uh, worship and learn from God's word and, and just hang out and fellowship. So uh, we are in Genesis right now and finishing up the sermon series the next three weeks or so. We've been in it since January. Been a little while and we're kind of drawing to a close here. We'll finish up on December 11 and do some Christmassy Advent uh, kind of sermons uh, for a couple of weeks uh, to kind of round out the year, and then we'll start something new uh, in, in the new year. So um, we're going to look at 11 chapters of the Bible today, which I've never done in 10 years. <laughs> Not going to read every word, or that's basically all we could do, and we'd just be done, you know, because that's all we have time for. But going to summarize a lot and read some key texts from the Joseph narrative of Genesis, which if you're uh, not aware, kind of rounds out uh, Genesis. It's the last 13 chapters of the book, b- basically 13 chapters, a little bit less than that, but basically 37 to 50 is the story of Joseph, uh, minus a few little sections there. We'll look at Judah next week, who's a key figure who resembles Christ and points us ahead to him in kind of unique ways. Also some weird stuff with he. well, I actually won't summarize it because it'll be too much of a cliffhanger, but um, and then uh, we'll finish up with uh, chapter 50 and some kind of summative things that Joseph says and prays and uh, says about suffering, things like that. And we'll just recap a lot. Uh, so 11 chapters, though, but to remind you who Joseph is uh, and to tell you for the first time if, turn my thing on here, if uh, he's a new figure to you, uh, Joseph is one of the patriarchs of the faith. Uh, we've been talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, who's renamed Israel, who had 12 sons. Joseph's one of them. But these patriarchs who are kind of these early men and their family, their wives and kids, who God covenants with, and we've been using this phrase, kind of a strange covenant or a strange patience or kindness that God's showing to uh, them as sinners. They don't deserve it, but God loves them. Uh, that, that idea that we're, we're sinful but loved is a very key Christian uh, doctrine idea. And we say it as Christians too, not just before kind of pre-Christian state, but as Christians, uh, still sinful but cleansed and loved. And that's something that's typified here in a lot of beautiful ways uh, throughout the stories of Genesis, the patriarchal narratives. Joseph is the son of Jacob, as I said, the great-grandson of Abraham. And Abraham was this first guy that God covenanted with and promised to bless even after death and sin and rebellion came into the world. So you've got to remember that backdrop. If you're new to the book, just understand that, that Genesis means beginnings. It's a theological history of beginnings. And so it's history, but it's also a particular theological slant on that history. And so what God says and, and what people kind of say in response, how they pray, how they rebel, uh, exactly. Satan's a, a main character, the, this, this kind of archangel, this ultimate uh, fallen angel who uh, brings a third of the demonic realm with him, uh, the angelic realm with him, uh, and, and they fall away. They're kind of main characters early on, and a lot of these guys. So um, they're all these, these main characters that in, in one way or another resemble us, as fallen people who are loved, even though we're sinful, uh, but also resemble Christ. And that's a key thing we looked at uh, week one and throughout. We're trying to remind you guys of this or recap this, uh, and it's a really important for today, as we'll see in a few minutes. Um, but to make sure you have a rationale for doing this uh, is, is to see the, the early narratives, these patriarchal narratives and stories of the Old Testament is not just a placeholder, but an actual prophetic text that points ahead to Jesus. Remember, a lot of these guys are actually ancestors of Jesus Christ, literally. So Genesis is a book of genealogies. It's a book of stories of the actual ancestors of Jesus Christ, which means this isn't just a bloodline. This is resemblance. Maybe some of you guys, you know, were with family this past week, and you saw some resemblance in your grandfather or something like that, or 
your mom told you, oh, you remind me of, you know, so-and-so who's not with us anymore or whatever. Like, that's a, that's a common thing, right? It's the same, actually, with Jesus, who was the son of God, but actually became a human being and was born into a family line. And so we're actually seeing some things here that's, that, that begin to, re- to resemble Jesus and resemble the way God will bless. God's been promising a, a vague sense of blessing amidst a cursed world and, and salvation, but he's getting more clear as the story goes on how that's going to take place. And one of the ways is, he, he talks in these terms, but he also shows us these, these things as well uh, through the, the life and times, essentially, of the patriarchs. So who is Joseph? He's a patriarch of the faith. He's an ancestor of Jesus Christ whose life and times resemble Jesus's and point us to the gospel prophetically. So if you don't know who Jesus is, uh, today is a great day to be here. It always is because we always talk about him. We love him. He's the center of everything we do as a church, and he's the center of how we read the Bible and the spirit of how the New Testament authors read the Old. And so that's how we're doing it. Uh, but it's a great day to be here because you're going to see a, a great glimpse, in a sense, a whisper, uh, but an intentional one of what he's done for you and how much he loves you, how much compassion he has for you, even though you and I are undeserving of that compassion. So this story is great for that. We are going to read chapter uh, 37, most of it, most of 39, and a lot of 45, and then some summarizing in between all of that. So I usually say pick up a Bible uh, or something or turn on your devices. Don't do that because I kind of cut this up a bit and I sum- I'm summarizing a lot. It'll be too hard to follow along. So follow along on screen. Uh, said first service, cozy up in those super cushioned seats most of you are not in <laughs> with your coffee. And some of you in back are like, this is great. Uh, these chairs are good too. Come over here if you want. But um, we're going to read for a little bit here. Uh, and I'll summarize at the end a few things too, kind of as we go. And at the end, as we read, though, uh, look, look for a few things. Look for um, the, the, the nature of sin. Look for the character of God, how he's in control of even difficult times to bring about good. And look for the, the kind of the ancestry of Jesus Christ kind of peeking its head up uh, from the layer of heavy fog. Like, oh, that reminds, us, that reminds me of something I, I read later uh, or elsewhere in the Bible. And uh, we'll connect some of those dots. Peter did some of that before the song. Totally stole my thunder. Where is that guy? Unbelievable. But no, it's good. Uh, repetition's good. So, uh, chapter 37, starting in verse, in verse 1. Here we go. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream with similar themes, and his father said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down to you and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now one day... Jacob sent Joseph to check on his older brothers who were tending to their father's flock, and he found them near Dothan. 
They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us not lay a hand upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now picking up in chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishma- bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me, but he refused. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And she told the same story to his master when he came home. As soon as his master heard this, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. All right, now some summary here of chapters 40 to 44. Uh, basically, it's an account of how the Lord helped Joseph interpret the dreams of fellow inmates and eventually the dreams of Pharaoh himself, who dreamed of seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, which then helped Egypt prepare for the famine. So Joseph was uh, released from prison. Uh, he, had, he was raised up uh, to become second in charge over all of Egypt. He gained favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And then verse uh, chapter 41, it says, picking up there, it says, And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. 
And they made him ride in his second chariot. And they, they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set over all the land, he was set over all the land of Egypt. Then in chapter 45 and beyond, uh, to summarize this, this is basically when the dramatic and ironic twist happens in the story is when uh, the seven years of plenty are up and the seven years of famine begin, a couple years into that or even less, it begins with Joseph's family coming down to Egypt to seek to buy grain, which, which most of the region had been doing uh, for months at this point because they had eaten up all the grain and there was a famine all around the region, all around Egypt, not just in Egypt, but all around. Egypt was prepared. They had storehouses of grain because of what God had told Joseph uh, in terms of what Pharaoh's dreams meant. And so Joseph's family arrives. They, they think he's dead. They arrive. When they arrive, uh, Joseph recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. Joseph's emotions, as you might expect here, all over the map. He has anger, excitement to see his family again, compassion. It's actually said multiple times in the narrative. He has to leave the room, he's so emotional, so he can weep in private. It's an interesting little uh, insight into uh, who he is. He's an emotional guy. He just has cry- he's just crying all the time. He's, he's kind of, in terms of what God had done and how he protected him and just what had happened and how God brought it out for good. But just in terms of seeing his family again, too, he's, he's overcome. And it says here, ultimately recognizing that God is the one who orchestrated the whole thing to ensure that the nations would be able to withstand the famine and the people themselves would be saved from certain death. And then picking up in 45 here, it says, Then Joseph, speaking of these events, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He's with his brothers now. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. A slight understatement there. Uh, But uh, verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph. It's really me. Whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So basically the summary of the rest of the story is in this sentence. It ends with Jacob's entire tribe, 70 people in all, settling in Egypt, uh, just experiencing relief from the famine, receiving the favor of Pharaoh, and increasing and multiplying greatly in the land. They they get this chunk of land called Goshen, and they increase, and they grow, and, and they multiply there, and they receive favor, and things are, are actually really, really good for them. So it basically ends, uh, ends there. We'll read some other aspects of this story a little bit next week, and then some end cap type, you know, what happens with Joseph here at the end of his life, and what does he say about God, and what God had done, and some other things that, that anticipate the next book of the Bible, which is Exodus, which we're not going to preach, uh, but we'll talk a little bit about it next week and uh, or two weeks from now in judah things like that i mentioned um, before but basically this is the the story of joseph and it's a story that that takes up about a fifth of the book of genesis a little more than a fifth and for a 50 chapter book that's a lot 
And so I think there's a reason for that. We'll come back to that. I think it's, it's given a lot of ink because it's, it's substantial. It starts to get a little bit more clear in terms of how God's actually going to bless, you know, how he's going to come into the world and in what way he's going to undo death, in what way he's going to undo the curse. And so we'll come to that here in, in just a bit. But before we do that, to connect some dots here biblically, theologically, as Peter was doing a bit before uh, that last song, to recap this, uh, this is my words, but basically it could be summarized as this, the whole story. So everything we read and then some could be summarized as, as this. The, the Joseph narrative, the story, uh, is of an innocent man being rejected, effectively killed, given over to non-Jews, thrown into a couple of pits, first a well and then a prison, only to rise up out of them victorious to serve as a forgiving, intercessing, compassion-showing, spirit-filled, second-hand, sun-like ruler who saves the masses, all the earth, it says, from a certain death and brings his family into the service of the king. So I'm going to ask you guys a question that we've been asking or just kind of stating throughout this series. Uh, does this remind you of anyone, the way this is written? Joseph wasn't the last one to go through these things. He was the first but he wasn't the last. And the Bible makes this clear. Uh, and this is the way it's, it's sort of written out. This is the book of beginnings. So we're seeing the beginning of this kind of narrative. The first time it occurs, essentially, it's going to happen again later in the story. And so Joseph then and his coat and his experiences speak beyond themselves to something greater than they. Like all the narratives and all the stories really in some fashion. But this one in a kind of a strange clarity in a way that the other ones um, kind of told a line to but don't quite make it, uh, make it into. And so uh, the story of Joseph is really helpful. And so let me get more clear in terms of connecting this with uh, its, its fulfillment, Jesus Christ and, and in crucified. In this story, there's just a few things in this chart. There are more. Maybe you saw more than this, but these are some of the big ones. In this story, Joseph is looked down on by his brothers and family. Same with Jesus. Joseph is stripped of his garments. Same with Jesus right before his death. Joseph is sold for pieces of silver, which is, again, odd. Strangely similar connection uh, to Christ when he was um, given over by Judas to the religious rulers right before uh, he dies. Joseph is a righteous man who does no wrong. He's tempted. He's accused of wrongdoing, though innocent. Accused of wrongdoing by Potiphar's wife, though he is completely innocent. Jesus, definitely the same. So much you could cite there, but it's exactly what Christ goes through. Joseph is imprisoned. Uh, he took punishment for someone else's sin. Potiphar's wife. Uh, again, that's exactly what Christ goes through. It's the heart of the gospel is Jesus taking punishment for someone else's sin. Joseph was then raised up after spending time in prison, this pit, uh, to a place of royalty and honor. Uh, it's, again, the gospel story uh, links with Christ as well and that Jesus actually was raised uh, from death to a place of ultimate royalty, uh, being the son of God, the ultimate king. Joseph is said to have the Spirit of God. Jesus is really said to have the Spirit of God. Uh, Joseph provides salvation for the nations, famine relief, essentially, for, quote, all the earth. Uh, it's the same with Christ, but for a spiritual famine. Uh, Jesus provides spiritual famine relief. There's a reason why Jesus talks about himself as bread so much and as water. He, uh, when he talks about how he's going to save and in what capacity, he, he talks about satisfying hunger and quenching thirst. Spiritual famine. Uh, Joseph had brothers who did not recognize him after his ascension to power. Again, a strange detail to tie into here. I love how the Bible does this. Uh, his brothers didn't recognize him. 
Uh, it's the same with Christ. In Luke 24, uh, actually, Mary doesn't at the tomb and that first Easter morning. She thinks he's the gardener. Do you remember that story? But his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 do not recognize him either, post, either uh, post-resurrection. Joseph forgives his brothers, his enemies, kind of in connection of his ascension, his resurrection, his figurative resurrection, his ascension to power. It's the same with Christ. Forgiveness of sins is associated with his death and ultimate resurrection. Finally, Joseph brings his family into the service of the king. He intercedes and advocates for him. That's a, that's a huge thing. Joseph being second in charge is advocating for his family when they come into the land, saying, this is my family. I want to give them land. I want to make sure they're cared for. And so they receive the favor of Pharaoh, the king, because of Joseph, who intercedes, and who is kind of both Egyptian and Hebrew. He's royalty, and he's like an Israelite. He's like, just by very nature, he's both. It's the same with Jesus. Jesus is God. He's royalty. He bridges the gulf between us because he's also human. He's like us, uh, small people, <laughs> creatures, who need to be bridged back as sinners uh, to, a, to a holy God. So it's the same with Jesus then. We, the theologians have this phrase called perpetual intercession, meaning Jesus is always interceding for us before a holy God. He's always advocating for us. He's always... Uh, bringing us into the land of blessing and um, in God's presence through his blood, but also perpetually in heaven. Right now, he's praying for us. Right now, he's advocating. Right now, he's interceding. Right now, because of our, if you believe the gospel, if you believe in Jesus, right now your connection to him is what actually connects you to salvation. It, it brings you to God. Same with Joseph. What is true with Joseph, then, we're seeing in the story, is also true in an ultimate, even better way, with Christ. The similarities are striking. This is really what the Joseph narrative then is ultimately trying to tell us. There's a lot going on. It's nuanced. It's layered. It's a lot more to say about it, but this is the primary thing, is to look ahead, to sort of, to use Paul's phrase in Galatians 3, to be the gospel beforehand. Beforehand, to show off what the gospel remedy would be after sin came into the world. Remember what Martin Luther said, too, about texts like this, actually, uh, any text of the Bible, but maybe in particular, foggy, strange texts in the Old Testament that we might have a hard time handling. Luther says in the 16th century, any who read the Bible and somehow do not find Jesus in it have not encountered the Word of God. Any who read the story of Joseph and do not find Jesus in it have not truly encountered the Word of God. And we would agree. So the story then is not really about us. We are in the story, and we'll talk a little bit about that today uh, in, in some fashion. But it's ultimately about, about him. And if it helps to think about it this way, think about it this way. This story and stories like it are for you and me, but they're not about us. They're not about you and me. That's a different thing. They're for us. And so in that sense, they're, they're kind of about us in some ways. And I said, we'll touch on that. But they're not really about us. They're about Christ first and primarily. And then they become for us uh, after, uh, after that. So it's about him. The ultimate patriarch, the second Joseph, the one who is stripped, the one who is sold for silver, the one who is rejected though innocent, the one who is killed, the one who is thrown into a pit, the one who bled, the one who is torn to pieces, and the one who rose up victorious the one who interceded, the one who forgave, 
the one who ushered in a new era where God and sinners again would be reunited. Uh, not based on moral effort, but based on grace. We'll talk about some of that here in a second. It's ultimately about him. And so why is this important? I have three things today. It's one thing to connect all those dots biblically, theologically, and if you've been around Hiawatha for any length of time, you've probably seen us do this before. We're doing this in the spirit of how the New Testament reads the Old, how when the New Testament authors preach or they write or they cite Old Testament stories, they always Jesusify them. Uh, the early church did this. Uh, the church throughout the centuries has. Uh, but it, it can be, uh, can tend to be, I don't know where all you are from and what your church background is or how biblically literate you are yet, I assume there's a whole variety of types here. Uh, it can be kind of a strange thing and, and, a, and a new thing. And so part of what I want to do today is kind of free you from the, uh, the, the overly simplistic, moralistic reading of a story like this that says the point is to be like Joseph and resist sexual sin. Amen. Take an offering. Let's go home. You know, that's, that's not the point. Uh, that could be a point. There, there's something to the fact that Joseph had the spirit of God, that he did resist sexual sin, but it's not the point. The point. Uh, the point has much more to do with God than you. And as we talk about sin and how much we have a propensity to read ourselves into stories and how much our lives just kind of by default are about us, it's true about me, it's true about you, I think just ingrained, we, we tend to be selfish people. We're prideful, we're arrogant, we're full of ourselves, we have Self-interest can be healthy, but it also can be kind of a damning thing if, if, it's, if there's too much of it. If that applies to how we read the Bible, you know, the first question we tend to ask just naturally is where are we in the story? Not where is God? What's it saying about him versus what is it saying about, about me? And both can be great questions, but again, primarily this is about him and his saving grace. And, and not just that he's saved, but how he's saved. What he was like when he say what he thinks about us there's a strong familial thing going on here in this story because god is called our father and our brother just like in this story he's not a benevolent boss to you he's like a loving father if you had a loving father that's what god is like if you didn't god is not like that he's like an actual loving dad and so we get a glimpse of that here too in in this story but anyway i digress a few things, why this is important. First, Genesis is getting clearer on how exactly God is going to bring his promise into the world, and that is through suffering and injustice and subsequent forgiveness of sins. So I kind of hinted at this earlier. Uh, there, there's a reason why this story, I think, is the longest patriarchal narrative in Genesis by far. It's given weight that other stories aren't because I think it's more significant in a sense, or at least it's more clear on how God is actually going to save the world, how he's going to come into it himself and enter into the mess himself, be thrown himself into a pit, only to rise up out of it victorious and bring his family into the service of the king. It's more clear. God is building towards something more substantial, uh, promise and fulfillment-wise. It's, it's kind of like he's moving from everything's going to be okay, God's been saying that throughout Genesis, even on the heels of sin, to people he's covenanting, promising, saying, I'm going to do something, everything's going to be okay. Moving from that to, this is how everything's going to be okay. You guys hear the, the, the trajectory? Everything's going to be okay, and then trajecting to, this is how. It's, it's going to be okay through suffering. It's going to be okay through an ultimate patriarch dying 
and being thrown into a pit, being sold for shekels of silver, rising up again and offering forgiveness to, the, to, to his family and sustenance to the nations. That's how it's going to come. And so both are good. It's not saying the former is bad, it's just lesser. God builds from the lesser to the greater all the time in the Bible, from the Old to the New Testament. And even right here, kind of encapsulated in the book of Genesis, you have something lesser, something simpler, something more general that gets a lot more specific. Everything's going to be okay, and this is how now. And so if all you know about the Bible is Genesis, we're starting to get there. We're starting to kind of piece together some of the missing pieces in, in terms of how exactly is God, as a just God who must punish sin, going to show mercy and somehow make a way around death, a way around hell for people he loves. And the Joseph narrative gets much more, much more clear on that. Essentially blows at the fog of confusion and vagueness and not being able to see very far down the road like this morning. Is it still, still foggy out there? It was this morning. I'm guessing it probably still, okay. So like the fog this morning, Christ is that big fan or wind that comes in and blows it away or the, or the sun that burns it off. And now we can see a little further down the, the storyline. We can see Christ uh, much more clearly. Or kind of like uh, I was thinking too, Aletha and I are starting to think about Christmas gifts for our kids. And it's kind of like saying to a kid at Thanksgiving, which Christmas is a month away, uh, we got you a present. And then later in December, being anxious and wanting to tell them, give them a hint because we can't wait and saying, you know, okay, it has something to do with athletics. Or it's a movie. Or something like that. You know? It's kind of like that. Uh, it's, we got you a gift. And this is something about it now. And we're not even there yet, right? This is still in Genesis. As the story goes throughout the Old Testament, remember, it's not just a placeholding, random bunch of stories that don't mean anything in relation to, to us or Christ. They mean everything. It's not sin came into the world, bunch of random meaningless stories, Jesus. It's sin came into the world, bunch of weird stories that resemble Christ ahead of time, then Christ. It's very different. And so as Christians, on this side of the cross, we're looking back, and we have, we have the clarity the Jews didn't, the clarity the early Hebrews didn't, the clarity the world didn't before that first Christmas, and ultimately before that first Easter. We, we, don't, we have this luxury of reading the book backwards, basically, uh, in the way that Peter and Jesus and Paul and James and John, all these New Testament authors do, they read the book backwards. So be encouraged by that. I, I think personally for me, I know I, I, when I'm reminded of this stuff, I, I'm grateful that God is not twiddling his thumbs. He's not making it up as he goes along. Jesus was always God's plan A. And we, we're unavoidably seeing this here in Genesis. God wants these things to be connected. He wants the strange things like silver and clothes being stripped and pits and functional resurrections and Gentiles or non-Jews being involved in forgiveness and all that's there, these strange, and, and the ones I left out, didn't even have time to mention, they're there for a reason. God wants us to make these connections and see these things. He wants to be known. He wants his gospel to be known and he himself wants to be known by, by us, which is an amazing characteristic of him. And so these stories whisper his name. And Joseph is starting, starting to, if, if the early parts of the Genesis are Joseph's starting to speak in a normal voice. And later through Christ, he shouts. So it's kind of that, uh, that, traject that trajectory or per 
yeah, procession, anyway, mixing words there. But, so the first thing is, uh, Genesis is getting clear on how exactly God's going to save the world. It's through one like Joseph who will come and suffer injustice and die for people and subsequently forgive. Second thing is, um, why is this important? Is because uh, we're the bad guys and we need a savior. Uh, if, if we are anyone in this story, uh, it's not so much Joseph, it's Joseph's brothers. Like them, uh, you and I have looked down on others. We envy people who are over us. We have greed. We lie. We can kill people with our hateful intent. Jesus says if you ever hate people, you've actually murdered them in the heart. That's from Matthew 5 in the New Testament. In fact, towards God as well, our actions have been treasonous. And we're suffering, all of us, a famine because of it. We're as good as dead, without help, that is, but we're as good as dead. I think another uh, kind of condemning aspect of this story, too, is when you look at, in chapter 39, when Joseph resists sexual sin, uh, Potiphar's wife, um, I'll, I'll share how I feel when I read this story. <laughs> and I'm, I'm guessing I'm going to tap into some of your feelings, too, hopefully, but um, I think this is, there's two, at, two angles on this we can we can feel when we read a story about a guy who was continually propositioned and who continually resisted, finally running away from sexual sin. The one is, this guy really lived. And when I read this story, there's a little bit of a fist pump inside me saying, yeah, you know, do it, resist her, run, you know. And thinking of how Paul says to Timothy in the New Testament, flee the evil desires of youth, speaking of sexual sin, I think in particular, flee, run. There's a place to run, a place to fight. So I think, I think there's a place to look at ourselves in, in Joseph here and say, for those of us who sin, not just sexually but otherwise, to say this guy really lived, and with this, remember he had the Spirit of God in him, with the Spirit of God's help there is hope. There is hope to resist. There really is. And it's not to make you feel bad if you're not kind of fleeing in the same way Joseph is. It's just to say, he, he really lived with God's help. It actually happened. So to know that it actually does occur, there's people sitting around you or people you know elsewhere, this kind of stuff happens all over the world every day. Christians, with the spirit of God's help, actually resist sin on this level. It happens. And so for, the, you know, for those of us who are steeped in sin, and all of us kind of are or will be or have been or all three, that's really good news. There's a lot of hope there that God is stronger than your addictions and, and your sins. So that's the one angle on it. Uh, on the other side, the sort of paradoxical, weird feeling that's kind of married to that is, and I'll speak for myself to begin, is, and I think this misses the greater, it misses the greater point to stop with the former <clears throat> as well. But the other feeling is, I haven't done what Joseph did. There have been times in my life where, in my heart, I haven't resisted on that level. And all of, all of you have had that, right? In the heart or the body. It's the same thing, really, where we were propositioned somehow, and we resisted for a little bit, but then we didn't, or we never did. And so this is written to people who have sexually sinned, or just sinned. And, and that, that's where this kind of condemning piece can come in and say, well, it's really exciting, that's great, but oh, I didn't do that this morning, or yesterday, right? And it's kind of left hanging out there. And so I, I think, where, bring this back to what, what we've been saying so far is, that's actually the glorious point is, it's not ultimately about you. 
I mean, it is and it isn't. With the Spirit of God's help, it is. But backing up, getting the big kind of 30,000-foot view here, this is about Jesus resisting sin. This is about his story ahead of time. Did Jesus perfectly resist temptation? Someone say it. Yes. And he died for us. And he advocated for us. And, and that Christ, who was really a human being, fully human, as all of you are in this room, just as human as us, lives inside of us. And by his spirit, we, have, we can have that power to, to resist. And even before that, he exonerates. Even before that, he accepts, he forgives, regardless of the sin. That's the point. That's a glorious point. This is about Jesus even more than Joseph. Even Joseph probably at times in his life after this where he didn't do this. So you can't put Joseph on a pedestal here. He's a sinner. I mean, someone said to me after the first service, I forgot about this, is he was kind of a, kind of a whiny jerk earlier in the story when he was kind of saying, all oh, these dreams. He's just a 17-year-old punk kid. He's going up to his brothers and saying, he was kind of a brat, you know. Uh, and surely he had sexual sin in his life because everyone does. We can, I think we can just assume that. Yeah, it's in the white space. But it's not ultimately about him as this perfect example to follow. It's about him having a moment of, with God's help perfection, that resembles a Jesus who fights for us. That's what it's about primarily. So be free in that. And then with, with that gospel affecting our heart, I mean, that, that's where freedom from sexual sin comes from. That's where, and other kinds of sin is, we're impacted by that. We're freed from the prison that we formerly were in, you know, and that narrative becomes ours. And, uh, but anyway, that's sort of another sermon, so I'll kind of let that, let that lie. But we're the bad guys. Why is this important? Um, the story is full of hope. It's full of hope uh, for, for sinners like us because a man like this really lived and a man came in his line who really, really, truly lived this way and who still lives, praise be to God. He rose again three days later and that changes everything and he lives right through and he saves us. And that leads me to the third thing and final here, which is, um, why is this important? It, it tells us a bit of the heart of Jesus towards us. I'm quoting Genesis here uh, from somewhere in the story. His compassion grew warm for his brother Benjamin and all his brothers. His compassion grew warm. That's, that's about Joseph. But at the same time, not really. It's kind of about Christ. And so I see, I, I think it's not, we've said this before here, um, it's not enough to say Jesus died for your sins sometimes. I mean, it, it always is. That's borderline heresy. Sorry about that. But it's, uh, <laughs> it is. But, but then it's, it, but it's also kind of this complementary piece to say Jesus died for your sins and this is his posture towards you when he was dying for your sins. He has compassion. You know, like, when you think about Jesus, do you think about a God who sings over you with joy, who actually wants to be close to you? This kind of, you know, passing phrase at the end of 45 where it says, and his brothers talk to him. Do you know you can talk to God? You and I can talk to him because he's come our way. I mean, you take that for, I take that for granted. That's just incredible. He's done something so that sinners can actually pray to him and talk to him. And the Joseph narrative kind of whispers this as well. But Jesus died for your sins. And 
Jesus has compassion for us and wants to do it as he's dying for our sins. You know, my wife has this phrase um, where she'll say, I, I like that you love me, but I also want you to like me. <laughs> and I love that, you know. I, I think that's, I love that you, is that what it is? I love that you love, do you love and like me? Something like that. Yeah, there you go, there you go. I think that there's something to that here. I think God loves us, and he's also like Joseph here. He just kind of likes, God likes you. You know, like that's, that's crazy. God loves you, and he likes you at the same time. That's, that latter piece, both are um, incredibly important, obviously, not to lower the first one, but. You know, it, it's, it's incredible that God is like this. It's hard to even put this into words, that Jesus was like Joseph, but even more, and he showed forgiveness, and he wanted to, I mean, even on this side, too, did, did, did Joseph require anything of his brothers when he saw them before he would dine with them? When he has an interaction in chapter 45, after all the injustice, all the sin, all the hatred, I mean, these guys are, these guys had a meal after they throw their brother into a pit. I mean, let's throw our brother in a pit. Oh, yeah, we'll sit down and have a good meal. Oh, that was, this was great, you know. These guys are really, really bad dudes. After everything, after years of separation, does he ask anything of them? Does he ask for repayment? Does he ask and make them as second in command a few years of community service? Is karma in play? Is he seeking revenge? Is he judging them? Is his first thought seeing them revenge? Isn't it amazing that it's not? It's incredible. I mean, who does this? A couple people with God's help and the church with the Spirit of God's help sometimes. But who does this? Jesus does this. That's the, that's the, that's, he's the only one who's truly done this perfectly. That's the point. Joseph kind of did. Jesus really did. This is what he's like towards you. When, when you come to him as a sinner, when I come to him as a sinner, he's not asking you for, for anything. Right? He's, this isn't, if this was karmic, what would he do? If he was trying to play the hand of karma here, right? He would throw him in prison. He'd find the well. Let's take him back. It's like a little field trip here, guys. Go back to the well, throw them in right? Sell them somewhere else. How do you like it? It's just mind-blowing that he doesn't do that. It's incredible. What's more incredible? God doesn't do that to us. That's even more incredible. That's what the gospel says. By grace you're saved, not by works. If this were about works-based righteousness, what would this story tell us? You know, he'd probably say, oh man, really good to see you guys. Um, You know, Here's a bunch of stuff to do, and then come back, and if it's done right, then we'll talk. It's basically what the story would be. If it's about religion, it's about doing, it's about morality, that's what the story would be. But it's not, and so therefore God is not. It's not, and so therefore Jesus is not. It's not, and so therefore the gospel is not about that type of narrative. It's about grace. It's about undeserved merit. It's about the stronger showing mercy to the weaker, not based on their righteous standing, but in spite of their unrighteous standing. 
It's a story about bad guys getting treated really, really kindly. That's what it is. It's about love trumping sin. It's about that too. And that's what's happened for you and me. And for those of you who don't know Christ yet, this is what the gospel is that people sitting around you who do have believed in, and you can today as well. It's not about performance and being great people. The Spirit of God does empower good deeds, but that's, that's an aspect of the gospel, not the sort of the son of the solar system. What we're seeing here in the story is more of the son of the solar system. And that is, God became human to suffer for us, to suffer injustice. He died for you substitutionarily, as a substitute. As John the Baptist says in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb is a sacrificial idea. Behold, look, here he is. He's finally here. The second Joseph, the ultimate patriarch, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is here, which tells us his mission, right? He's going to die for the sins of the world. And so Christians are people who are messed up, who believe that story, and who are saved forever because of it. That's all it is. Don't overcomplicate it. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then to gather with the church the rest of our life, to keep hearing it, to sing about it, to eat it in remembrance of Christ, to be baptized as a symbol of it, to, to kind of pray it into our lives and other people, and to be sent out to take it to others, to tell the world that spiritual famine and relief is actually possible. There's this place it's called Jesus Christ. And you, if you go there, there's, there's storehouses of grain forever, and it's given as a gift. It's free. You can go and live there and increase and multiply and be saved and, and be reconciled to the king. You know, that's... This story is about the stronger showing mercy to the weaker. Not based on their righteous standing, but in spite of it. Amazing news today as we... Um, Begin, begin, begin Advent and uh, worship here to respond. So let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel today. Thank you for your love and for the cross. Thank you for telling us flat out in the Bible how much you love us and what you did for us on the cross and then for showing it to us in kind of a figurative narrative way elsewhere too so we would have this, this duality of statements and narratives. We hear it and we see it. We read it, and we feel it. So that everything around us, um, all kinds of injustices that turn out for good, can also whisper that. In the world, in our lives, as we look at the cross, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks too, but um, at the end of Genesis, God, how you say um, through Joseph, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. If we have a God who is master over that, over all bad things, to turn them for good, whom shall we fear? And what shall we fear? Uh, our God is, has entered into our mess and can empathize with our temptations. He's bigger than our doubts and fears and disbeliefs and our addictions, and he trumps them with love. He weeps over us with joy. He accepts us and forgives because he dies for us. This is the way, this is the plan of God. And we thank you that it's, it's this complex and nuanced and beautiful for us just to kind of peer into a bit today, God. Thank you for speaking to us. Uh, help us to leave changed by this and um, more equipped to read our Bible in this manner, especially Old Testament narrative like this, and to see glimpses of who you are uh, through them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.